This is I'm 29 and here's what I know so far. Written and narrated by me, Christina Fenner. Well, this is my last year in my 20s and I'm not mad about it, but I do have a few things to say. Here are some of the most impactful situations, personal lessons, and encounters that I've experienced so far in my 29 years of life. Number one, the worst breakup I ever experienced had nothing to do with a guy or a romantic partner. I was at the time blindsidedly dumped by my best friend. I honestly never saw it coming, and I had absolutely no idea that there was trouble in the friendship. She was moving out of state, acting sketchy, and last minute blew off our plans to formally say goodbye. And then she texted me and told me how she really felt. And legit fled the state the next morning. No joke, Taylor Swift will be coming for me for her next album. To say that it obliterated me would have been an understatement. I sobbed. But you know what they say, hindsight is twenty twenty. At the time, my personal life was a bit of a mess. And I bled that all over to those who are closest to me. In my mind, your best friend is supposed to be one who you can confide everything in. Someone who never judges you, who is always there to support you no matter what, and who would never let you down. Honestly, sometimes I think we hold our friends to this unobtainable, unrealistic level. I can see that now. What I couldn't see at the time was that her life was also in a huge transitional period of its own, and all of my shit, I'm sure, felt like the tornado about to hit ground on an already shaky house. I'm not making excuses for her behavior, but I do understand it. I was extremely wrapped up in my own shit, and I couldn't see how my actions played a role here, too. I know what you may be thinking. Like, well, that's what friends are for. And while I do agree with that to some extent, we also have to remember that our friends are also human, and they do fuck up. Sometimes worse than others. Despite a few texts back and forth, it was clear that the friendship was done. And it was probably an ideal breakup, since she no longer lived in the state. So it wasn't like we would have to awkwardly avoid each other in the aisles at Walmart. At the time, right after I got dumped, it was easier to try to negate the entire friendship, calling it fake or surface level. But in reality, that wasn't the truth. I cherished the friendship, and I'm thankful for it. It provided me with an incredible amount of insight into the dynamic of adult friendships. And let's not forget, she's the one that introduced me to eyebrow pencils and a perfume that cost more than $15 pink body mist from Victoria's Secret. Trust me, I'm thankful. I actually try not to think about this time that often because it was a painful one. It still makes my heart sink to remember. Out of all of the friendships and relationships that have faded throughout the years, this is the one that I wanted to write about because it holds the most powerful lesson. Sometimes friendships end, and whether or not you think it's justified, it's always better to be at peace than to be right. There are always things that you can't see clearly when you're in them. Always, good or bad. Time is your friend, and it doesn't negate the other person's poor behavior to then be able to see a situation with clarity later on. Number two, I thought I would want kids by now. This one is the hardest one to write. There was a time that I thought for sure I would be married with at least one kid by 25 because that seemed like a very normal and safe thing to do. But that was when 25 seemed like light years away. I'm 29, and I still don't know if I feel the desire to have children of my own. All right, let's pause. What's most messed up about this whole thing is that I had to physically stop myself from immediately following up that last sentence with, but I do love my stepdaughter, which obviously I do, but it's sad to me that I feel it necessary to then justify myself. 
I don't want kids of my own, but that doesn't mean that I don't love and thoroughly enjoy my stepdaughter. Anyway, once I move past the feelings of needing to reaffirm my love for my stepdaughter, I then start to stress about my own insecurity of why I don't want kids in the first place, or why my internal clock is dead silent. Isn't that supposed to be like some natural motherly instinct thing or something? And yes, I know what they all say. You don't know love until you're a mother. And I truly believe that. I'm not trying to purposely deprive myself. I just really don't think that it's for me. Trust me, I think to myself all the time, is it normal to feel like this, to lack the desire to be a mother? So the next time that someone asks me if Dustin and I are having kids, because we're married and that's kind of the thing to do now, I will direct them to this podcast episode. I just don't know. I don't necessarily think it's wrong for people to ask someone when or if they're having kids, because after all, it's pretty common. But what I do think is wrong is having an opinion or a rebuttal after their answer. You ask the question, so accept their answer. There should never be a why or a justification or, you know, trying to convince them otherwise. I don't know if I will have children. Honestly, I have absolutely no idea. This is what I struggle with the most in my life at this time, and this is what I pray for clarity and peace on. And that's all I have to say about this. Number three, I embraced therapy like a motherfucker. My 20s were filled with some emotional shit that I really needed to work through in many areas of my life. For example, one of the most prominent areas of my life that required attention were the long-term effects of adoption and fear of abandonment. What's odd is that these things didn't really show themselves until my early adulthood, and they showed in really weird ways. This is a hard and very personal topic for me to share about, but I want to share about it because I feel that it's extremely informational and beneficial for others to learn about when it comes to adoption. For those of you who are new here, quick backstory. My sister and I were born and adopted in Romania. We are not biological sisters, but that doesn't really matter, just for informational purposes. Neither of us have any knowledge or information about our biological parents. I was adopted when I was 15 months, and my sister was adopted later on when she was four years old. However, we are only a year apart. My dad was in the military, and my parents were stationed overseas in Romania, and so that's how they came to adopt my sister and I. And the rest is history. My earliest memory of my fear of abandonment, which I didn't realize was as messed up as it was until my therapist brought it to light was when I was about five years old, my family and I lived in the embassy compound in Saudi Arabia. I remember being absolutely terrified that if I had acted up or misbehaved before school that day, that my parents wouldn't let me back in the house after school when I got home, or that they would have left somewhere and left without me. Like I said, my dad was in the military, so we moved a lot. So in my five-year-old mind, moving somewhere to another continent on a whim without your child was a totally doable thing. Now, before I continue, let me make it absolutely clear. This irrational fear of mine was not the doing of my adoptive parents, who I will now refer to as just my parents. They were and are the absolute best, most loving and caring parents. This was a result of a very normal and common disorder, most commonly referred to as RAD or reactive attachment disorder. That was also my earliest memory of experiencing anxiety. The bus ride from school to our embassy was about 35 minutes, and I vividly remember being so anxious and scared that my parents wouldn't be home or wouldn't let me inside when I got home. Looking back now, I realize how absolutely irrational and unfounded this fear was, 
but at the time, it felt very real. Statistically, the younger a child is adopted, the less likely they are to suffer from severe forms of RAD or various other psychological and or subconscious impacts of adoption. Sadly, this is one of the leading reasons why we see so many older children in the foster care systems and adoption programs. I cringe when I make this comparison, but for the purpose of understanding only, it's similar to the idea of people only wanting to adopt puppies rather than grown or older dogs. Puppies don't have bite risk or needs to be the only dog requirement on their adoption forms. People want to be able to raise the puppy without any or a very low amount of prior learned behavior and stimulants. Similarly, in children, RAD raises its ugly head in uncountable ways, different and varied from one child to the next, and it is extremely difficult to identify, let alone cure. Can you hear my air quotes? This potential and unknown extra work and baggage is often a deterrent from families adopting older children. There's absolutely no way to identify or predict what forms or level of severity RAD will show up in children's behavior, either when they're young or later on when they're an adult. It is very much a crapshoot. As I got older, the anxiety of being left behind by my family went away pretty quickly, and I thought surely I was good, that those feelings of abandonment were long behind me. And then I entered early adulthood. Now, I wasn't fearing getting off the school bus, but I was letting people treat me like absolute garbage. I had shitty friends, shitty relationships, shitty situations that continued because I could never let go of anyone or anything. I wanted to be liked, and I never wanted to be left, no matter how unhealthy or hurtful the situation was. I forgave, shoved under the rug, made exceptions, and was the equivalent to a walking doormat for a good majority of my late teens. I would ask my therapist, why are people so bad to me? And that's when we unlocked Pandora's box of the long-term effects of RAD. For a while, I didn't want to accept the fact that it was me, that I was the one allowing and accepting the ill behavior from others. It didn't make their behavior right or acceptable, but telling a shitty friend to go fuck herself wasn't going to make the world end. Therapy was good for me, in many ways, but mostly it helped me understand and accept why I struggled. For the longest time, I wanted to distance myself from my adoption. I didn't want to think that it had any impact on me or my life because I was so young when I was adopted anyway. But in reality, it played and continues to play a huge role. It's a part of me and it's something that I sit with every day. The lesson here is, whatever you struggle with, the first step to making any kind of change in your life, good or bad, begins with you. Whether you have a pre-existing condition whether you need a therapist, whatever it is, change, progress, and or healing cannot begin until you know and accept that it starts with you. I also want to reiterate that adoption is more than Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. It's not a celebrity thing. It's not a fad or an accessory. The foster and adoption system is so fractured, and I wish more people talked about it. Number four, I got my money right. I had no idea how much of an emotional spender I used to be. I used the term retail therapy way more literally than intended, and it really screwed things up for me and my credit score later on down the road. As I'm sure some of us can relate, my money habit issues created issues in many other areas of my life. It was like a snowball that I couldn't stop from rolling down the hill. It was horrible, and it felt so out of control. 
One of the best things that I've ever done for myself and my wallet is that I learned about how emotional and psychological money actually is. We often don't think of it that way because money is currency and currency buys shit and shit is an object, not a feeling. But that's so far from the truth. My money habits were heavily driven by feeling and emotion. I have listened to six, yes, six audiobooks on this exact topic, and it has improved not only my financial state, but my mental state when it comes to finances. I used to restrict myself with the limiting belief that I was just bad with money, that I just didn't know how to budget. And so that's why I would black out in Target, and $400 later, I'm weeping in the parking lot once that dopamine hit wore off. Wrong. I was an emotional impulse shopper. I feel like we use these cutesy little terms like shopaholic just to blanket over the real issue. And I also wish that I didn't have to pay Audible for six audiobooks to even know that this was a real thing in the first place. Trust me, I am still the queen of treat yourself, and I am still swiping that plastic at Target, but it's more methodical now. I hesitate when I compare this to an addiction because I don't want it to sound like I'm minimizing or negating other forms of serious addiction. But in my experience, it took a hell of a time, self-control and discipline, to pull myself out of the vicious cycle of emotional shopping. It was really hard, and it still is hard sometimes. I still have to force myself to put certain blockers in place so I don't fall back into old habits. For example, now I rarely ever buy anything like clothes, home decor, makeup, etc. the very first time that I see it or come across it. I force myself to wait at least two days, and I can't even tell you how much shit I haven't bought because I totally forgot about it and, in reality, didn't really need or want it. But the stuff that I do end up buying, I know that it's stuff that I really love, and it's not just an impulse dopamine hit. This actually happened the other day. I had really been wanting a second Christmas tree in the kitchen. I know, random, but it's my thing. Anyway. I was in Big Lots and I was looking right at the last floor model pencil flocked Christmas tree, the exact one that I wanted. The Lord himself would have had a hard time stopping me from shoving that floor model Christmas tree into my cart. And then I stopped. I paced for a minute and I reluctantly walked out of the store empty handed. I could not tell if this was an impulse buy. I had been wanting another Christmas tree so badly for a few weeks but I also hadn't mentioned it to Dustin yet, which is one of my self-implemented blockers. Dustin is the furthest thing from an emotional shopper, so likely if he thinks something is totally stupid and unnecessary, he's going to have no issue telling me. So instead of rushing to my car and calling him at work to ask if I could get a second Christmas tree like an absolute psychopath, I waited until that night and I asked. And before we get ahead of ourselves, Let me make it perfectly clear that this is not one of those I need to ask my husband for five bucks for gas type deal. Now, as I said, this is only for stuff that I like to call a Christina purchase. Trust me, checking out a bag of groceries in Walmart does absolutely nothing for me, so it's not an issue. Anyway, asking Dustin his opinion on Christina purchases first has been an extremely helpful and successful blocker that I have put in place in order to prevent over and unnecessary spending on my end. And yes, I did go back the next day and get that tree, and I am obsessed with it. It was not an impulse buy, and I'm so happy with it. And the best part is I didn't have that gut-wrenching, icky come down from an impulse buy blackout. 
Paired with my bad habit of impulse shopping, in the past, I'd also been a horrible saver. I felt like if I had a little jingle in my pocket, I needed to spend it right away. Didn't matter on what, but it was practically burning a hole in my pocket. When Dustin and I got engaged in 2019, I was still in the midst of working through my money habit issues. We were on the tail end, but I wasn't out of the woods yet. We decided to set a huge and, quite frankly, overwhelming goal to save up and pay for our entire wedding in cash ourselves. It felt like a huge, nearly unobtainable goal at the time. But I am also highly motivated by a challenge and achieving a goal. And let me tell you, on July 18th of this year, when Dustin and I woke up the morning after our wedding day with $0 of wedding debt, it was euphoric. Better than any high or achievement that I had ever felt in the checkout line. We did it. We saved and paid for our entire wedding in cash. It was so freaking hard, but we had crushed our goal. And at that point, saving large sums of money didn't feel like a struggle. It had now become a habit and felt very much obtainable. That itself was the huge catapult that lunged me out of the limiting belief that I was bad at budgeting and saving money. And everything since then has been a cakewalk because I think to myself, hey, if I can save and pay for an entire wedding, then this, whatever I'm saving up for, is nothing. My advice to you, if you are an emotional spender, or if any of this sounds a little too familiar, get right with your money mindset. It's one of the best things I've ever, ever done for myself. Number five, I'm sure most of us have heard of the five love languages, right? It's a book written by Gary Chapman back in 1992 based on the idea that all humans receive and give loves primarily or more heavily in one area of affection or love language than the remaining four. It's a fascinating and insightful read. And even though it was written the same year that I was born, that old coot Gary was definitely onto something. After listening to the audiobook twice, it made me start to think about the idea that if people show and receive love differently than one another, then the same concept probably applies to the idea of conflict. During the early years of mine and Dustin's relationship, how we fought was a huge contributor to the frequency of fights. A minor disagreement would ensue, and because how we handled conflict and tension was literally on either end of the spectrum— it would lead to more fights about how that person acted during the fight, and that would just snowball like crazy. Something that we have invested time and effort into heavily is practicing better and more efficient fighting. I know, that sounds so weird to say out loud, but trust me, this is the golden ticket. Part of my vows to Dustin on our wedding day were this. I believe that the strength of a relationship is most accurately measured not during times of ease, but during times of sorrow. These last few months have been a gift of undeniable reassurance that even through the toughest and saddest times, we can lean on one another and see it through. I have never felt more closer, more connected, and more understood by you than I do today. In this part of my vows, not only was I referring to the loss of our sweet boy Nico, but I was also speaking to the amount of growth and progress that we have experienced during those tough times of conflict or disagreement. We are so strong not because we don't fight, but because we have become so much better at fighting. My advice to you would be to get your shit together when it comes to conflict with your partner, whether you're married or not, because quite frankly, conflict patterns are a series of habitual thought processes, and it doesn't just automatically resolve itself because you are now legally bound. During conflict, no matter what it's about, 
I always remember to ask myself, what is my ideal end goal in the next five minutes? Which forces myself to think logically instead of emotionally. And then I spent around three times on one foot repeating a seance. No, totally kidding. But as I mentioned, this is a practice. It's a skill that can be developed and takes some major self-discipline. It doesn't happen overnight. And trust me, there will be fuck-ups along the way. But stick with it. And I promise you, it is so worth it. And lastly, number six. I got real about gratitude. I don't know about you, but the idea of just being in a constant state of gratitude not only sounds marvelous, but also extremely overwhelming and unobtainable. Thank you, universe, for Duncan fucking up my order again for the fourth time this week. I am so grateful. Uh, no. (laughs) Eight months ago, I came across a TikTok, thank you, COVID, about the easiest and smallest ways to implement gratitude into your daily life. I don't know what kind of for you page I was scrolling that day, but I clicked on the link to a $7 Amazon gratitude journal, and it has legitimately changed my life. This journal consists of three lines for each day, and before bed or when you wake up in the morning, you're supposed to write down three short things that you're grateful for. That's it. No prompts, no paragraphs, just three sentences, words, whatever. I thought to myself, all right, easy enough. My first few entries were something like, grateful for the feeling of climbing into clean bedsheets, and grateful for coffee, and the last one, grateful for my family. And then I just kept doing it over and over and over every single night before bed, including my wedding night. Yes, I brought my gratitude journal with me to my wedding because at that point, it had become such a habit, it was like packing a toothbrush. Some entries are more expansive or in-depth than others, but it's the practice of focusing on something good that you experienced that day. One entry of mine was that I was thankful that I had cleared my inbox and had no unread messages. It doesn't really matter what the entry is, which makes it not overwhelming. I will say, keep this journal in sight and in mind. I keep mine right on my nightstand, so when I crawl into bed at night, I see it, which reminds me to write an entry. It literally takes maybe two minutes, and the results of this are amazing. And trust me, I was totally one of those people who heard about this journaling idea that it would change your life. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that's bullshit. But I'm here to say eight months in, I will never go without a gratitude journal again. And I totally wish that I would have done this way earlier in my 20s. The idea is not to be grateful for every shitty thing that happens, but instead to change your perspective to focus on the positive rather than hyper-focusing on the negative, which used to be a huge habit of mine. You can find this link to the Amazon Gratitude Journal in my 2021 gift guide on my blog. Wow, that was a lot, but honestly, I'm so happy to have shared all of that with you guys. I hope that you enjoyed listening just as much as I enjoyed sharing. I can honestly say that I like 29-year-old Christina way more than I liked 20-year-old Christina. I'm thankful to have made it this far, and I'm excited to see what my last year in my 20s brings. Cheering you on from two-day hangovers and bed by 9 p.m. Christina.